0: G'day, Mark Kenny here, and welcome to Democracy Sausage. This following discussion is a really interesting one about anti-corruption commissions, but there is a little bit of noise on a Tony Ward's track that you will hear, but I think it actually is worse just at the start and, and improves after that. We are talking, as I say, about anti-corruption commissions, but uh, perhaps we should be talking about an anti-construction commission because he had some building work going on where he was and uh, some of that noise comes through. So if you'd be good enough to stick with us, I think you'll get a lot out of this discussion. and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
1: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
2: Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is
1: back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank... Uh, that fell down under. I don't think. I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Sit down. They're your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing
2: sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean.
1: <laughs> oh, fair shack of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good.
0: <laughs> Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny. Patience is being sorely tested at present as residents of flooded towns along the eastern seaboard complain about the slow and patchy emergency relief response. Still more worry about the decision-making processes that have failed to provide adequate flood mitigation and failed also to account for the increasing frequency of extreme weather phenomena. Meanwhile, in the Northern Hemisphere, militarily independent countries close to Russia, I'm talking specifically of Sweden and Finland, are now actively considering NATO membership as popular opinion shifts in those countries from hope in a peaceful Russia under Putin to fear. These are a couple of acute examples of what happens when trust collapses, trust in governments and their functions, and in the case of Northern Europe, obviously, decades of accumulated trust in the goodwill of neighbouring governments. With me to discuss some of the forces that bring that about, that declining trust, and it's a problem right across the the democratic world, it seems, are a couple of fantastic scholars. As always, Dr. Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations, also the Director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Welcome, Maria.
2: Hello, everyone. Nice to be back.
0: And Dr. Tony Ward is a fellow in historical studies at the University of Melbourne, and he recently wrote a really interesting piece for The Conversation on the Government's Failure to Deliver an Anti-Corruption Commission. Welcome for the first time, Tony.
1: Thank you, Mark. Uh, Thank you for your interest, and very pleased to be here.
0: Yes, well, uh, we're glad to have you here, because uh, that piece you wrote, uh, you looked at the The situation, I suppose, in Australia with uh, the government having promised uh, at the last election to bring in an anti-corruption commission. There's been furious debate about this around the country. There's been a lot of political heat around the issue. And yet here we are approaching the 2022 election, pretty much a full term on, and we don't have one. We don't have any agreement on one to the extent that the government has any commitment to this issue. It was in a um, a mechanism, a, an anti-corruption commission that is quite a different body from the one, probably the most famous one, being the ICAC in, in New South Wales. We're quite a different body there and much, much uh, more restricted in its activities. Uh, the, the, the vernacular is, uh, you know, we want an anti-corruption body with teeth and the government was uh, providing one with perhaps just gums.
1: My work uh, really goes further than that. That is a very important part of it but my my work is based on the Transparency International Perceptions of Corruption Index, and I take that back to 2012 when the the current series starts and shows that over the intervening decade, the um, perceptions of corruption in Australia have grown, and so Australia has fallen down the international league table quite significantly in, in the last decade.
0: Do you reckon, uh, d- d- sorry to interrupt you there, but that's that's a really worrying development. Uh, do, do you think that's sort of broadly known by voters? Um, I mean, in a sense, it's a reflection of what voters think. So at one level, I suppose it is known. But, you know, it, you must have spoken to people, ordinary people, who are outside the academy, for example, and, and mentioned this. D- are people surprised when they hear that Australia is actually sliding down that scale of, uh, of trust?
1: I think... they're they're, they're not surprised that there have been changes in Australia. They are a little surprised at the the comparison with other countries and how far we've gone down the league table. Are you surprised by it, Maria?
0: Uh,
2: Well, in a way, no, actually. I mean – given the sort of rolling sort of stories about government mismanagement and practices over over the last sort of decade across multiple governments as well, across multiple jurisdictions. And, you know, the, the language around these events sort of seems to be kind of shifting as well. Like it's, you know, it's it's not a question of, you know, integrity and competence. It's sort of, you know, everyone does it or it's part of the, the quote-unquote game, I think there's been a lot of slippage around how we think about these concepts and we've become kind of accustomed to them. It sort of flows into that line that, you know, well, all politicians do it. You shouldn't be surprised. Uh, and I, I think that's actually sort of how we, you know, that's actually really corrosive because... Uh, ultimately, people need to be seen to be following the rules, and the rules need to need to be rational and 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 uphold good standards.
1: I, I would agree totally with that. I think that it is indeed corrosive if you compare us with most of the OECD countries, and my research focused on those. Um, I think most most OECD countries had fairly stable ratings over the last decade. On uh, Transparency International uses a 100 point scale. Australia fell from fairly close to the top by 12 points on that scale. So we've, we've fallen quite, quite a bit when most people are stable. Two other countries I think are worth mentioning. Uh, Hungary has also fallen, started at a much lower point, but that's fallen by 12 points, um, with some quite alarming trends there. Conversely, Italy has done extremely well. It's gone up 14 points in uh, in the last decade. And an important part of that has been the establishment of a national anti-corruption body, similar to the sort of ICAC with teeth that you mentioned to start off with, Mark.
0: Yeah, so it's really interesting because a lot of this is about perceptions. In fact, it's called the Corruption Perceptions Index. It, it, should, should we be... Uh, wary because it is about perceptions rather than necessarily more objective criteria?
1: It's difficult uh, to get precise measurements on, on that, not least because the, much of what is corrupt is illegal. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to get good measurement of, of that. Um, and I think it's also, as uh, Maria was suggesting, it's it's a question of what people are used to that if the whole thing becomes fairly corrosive, oh, yeah, that's just a way of, of doing business. And so those perceptions do change. But one other key point, I think, is that the, the flow through to economic performance, which is what I focus on in my article, is very much to do with investment. And perceptions are key in investment. People want to know that if they invest in something, they will get a reasonable return. That's whether you're looking at a a major investment by a big company to even individuals deciding whether they're going to do an extra TAFE course. They want to know that they're going to get a result. And if you start to think that the the system is rigged or um, insiders are going to get preferential treatment, then very quickly that perception affects whether you're prepared to invest or not
0: yeah well that's that's an interesting point because when we think about like the, the the crisis that we have in the Ukraine at the moment and the world's reaction to it uh, the 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 sanctions that are being applied to Russia the extent of uh, Integration of the world economy. What we actually learn, uh, I think, it's been something of a revelation to many of us who are not in, in, in you know, operating in the the sort of stratosphere of high finance and uh, hedge funds and and energy investments and the like. But there's a hell of a lot of economic integration with a country like Russia. Now, obviously, this is strongly driven by the amount of wealth there and its you know its resources, which gives it a a huge. Integration into other countries, but there's a lot of investing going on in a place that I think most people would say was known to be corrupt.
1: Uh, there are there are certainly some levels of investment yes, and those international flows are are very important. Uh, but even there, I think you're you're seeing the more there are barriers coming up, the the less likely people are to to invest. And we've seen with, uh, with the sanctions coming on, even, even before the full-scale sanctions were there, a lot of Western companies were saying, we're simply not going to do business there anymore. It's, uh, the risks are too high for us. An important story that struck me, um, visited um, uh, Timor-Leste a few years ago, and I was chatting to a, um, a young Irish economist who was working with the um, Ministry of Finance there. And asking him about the the prospects for economic growth, and he said, "Well, one thing you've got to remember is the level of destruction that happened with the just before the uh, or just after the, ref, um, the independence referendum from the Indonesian backed militia, and then five years later there was uh, an outbreak of violence in in Dili, which uh, led to quite a bit of uh, devastation." And he said, look, most people here, if they're looking at investment in um, tourist facilities or even very small things, they're looking for a five-year payback period because that's what they're used to in terms of that that frame of reference. And there are very few projects anywhere in the world that will give you a five-year payback. So it's... That level of trust that you were referring to is, is very important and if people have good reason for, for doubting that, they're, they're going to hold back. Yeah,
2: I, mean, I think it's really interesting sort of what you, you're sort of saying and, and the link with, uh, with Putin's Russia, right? I think that's actually, it's really important the way that Putin has over many years if you 're not really familiar with Russian politics, but one of the kind of key refrains that that he has there is that um, all democracies are kind of corrupt right like you know and he 'll point to voting irregularities in the United states or or like other issues elsewhere as a way of sort of saying so you don 't need to worry about potential problems here because everyone does it and and I think that 's sort of why this type of language around uh, corruption is corrosive, as you sort of say, Tony, because ultimately it does undermine all of our confidence that in the efficacy of government, which in Australia, like according to the AES, has really high kind of efficacy. And I guess we've sort of seen a, a series of scandals over over the years that go to this, like the, the, the problems around the robo-debt sort of stuff, all the sort of sports rorts and car park funds, some of which were never built, these concerns around disaster money that has never been laid out. The government was about to go back to surplus on the back of not spending money in the ndis like all of these things they sort of circle around how well is government actually working how well is government sur- servicing us and and ultimately you know you, you you hear less and less now politicians saying well it's the public's money right it's taxpayers Money. Um, and that's actually what it is. It's, it's our money, which we entrust as custodians to our political leaders to spend. And so, you know, when they come back and say things like, oh, well, you know, people had their chance to vote for, you know, useless car parks that they don't need and that's okay. That's why it is actually really quite damaging.
0: That's a really good point. And there was a really fascinating response, I think, in that sports sports which actually preceded that, which very luckily for the, this government in, in a political sense was was a story that kind of, you know, raged for a while but then largely got swept away by the uh, the story that swamped everything, the onset of the pandemic. But a government response that was quite popular at the time was from ministers and 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 coalition MPs saying that politicians make the decisions about where money is spent. We don't have faceless bureaucrats doing it which complete you know might have sounded great if, if you didn't think about it for more than a nanosecond but in completely flipped on its head the idea of the allocation of funds according to objective criteria so the politicians uh, in the in the, in their capacity as legislators you know make laws uh, for the disbursement of funds uh, set up programs with proper accountability proper rigor in them and officials then dispassionately go about making decisions about how that money ought to be uh, allocated against those criteria. And what we saw in in the Sports Rorts case was that, as we know, with the famous colour-coded spreadsheet and the like, was that that criteria just got overridden, uh, uh, got, got overwritten effectively by political Considerations that where ministers decided what was in the best interests of the of re-electing the government. So, uh, you know that that sort of flippant response. Oh well, you know politicians are the ones who are responsible to the people, and we decide. is you know, completely misleading.
2: But that's the problem, right? It's the, the breakdown of that key link in the chain of. Uh, responsibility or delegation is that there is no uh, means for them to be held accountable because they currently are are effectively dodging that. It's you know, and and it does reinforce the perception that there is one rule for political elites and another rule for everyone else, which is, I think, the kind of robo-debt example.
0: You know, you can imagine the meeting, that, meetings that would have happened, the strategy meetings in the light of the revelations about sports rorts, the Auditor-General's report and the stories that came out and the emergence of the colour-coded spreadsheet and everything else. And they would have been working out what their lines were and they decided that line of saying, well, ministers make decisions, not bureaucrats, they would have decided that actually had some cut through with their supporters and with people who didn't Particularly, think deeply about it. It sounds sort of proto-democratic, almost like, "Oh, the elected officials decide, not a bunch of heartless kind of boffins somewhere."
1: There is actually a line in the in the audit office report um, on the uh, sports rorts, which I think hasn't received the attention it should in in relation to this this point, which is that the legislation says clearly that it's up to the sports commission to make the decision. On allocation of those funds, and the audit office report—I think I'm quoting it correctly—says it's unclear what legislative basis the minister had for making the decision she made. That is as close as the audit office ever comes to saying you had no basis for making this decision. Yeah,
0: and that doesn't even go to the question about the colour-coded spreadsheet going to the prime minister's office and who knew what. In relation to that. I mean, that that whole affair, uh, as I say, largely sort of got swamped by other things, but there are many, many quite important questions that have not been answered. And perhaps that's because there are no actual answers. There are no sanctions that apply beyond uh, those sorts of observations. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment.
2: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? Or find us at policyforum.net
1: slash podcasts.
0: Welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking about sports rorts and what safeguards exist for voters, I suppose, for taxpayers, for citizens of this country uh, when their governments uh, are acting inappropriately or when elected officials are perhaps uh, acting corruptly, breaking the law. And uh, in some cases, it's not always that clear. Tony, what, what countries are, are sort of squaring up to this challenge?
1: If I could go back to a couple of points that Maria made and then come back to your point. The first is I was reminded when you were talking about um, uh, the situation in Russia of a uh, possibly apocryphal story from someone in uh, the then East Germany who said when the, when the wall came down, we found that everything that the capitalists had told us about socialism was correct. <laughs> Ten years later, we unfortunately found that everything the socialists told us about <laughs> capitalism was also correct. Um, so that ends up with a, with a great situation of a, of a lack of trust in anything. And related to that, I think is an important part of the international picture that particularly in the States and in Britain, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, there was a widespread loss of trust in the federal governments or national government in the UK uh, because they were seen as bailing out fat cat bankers with large amounts of money when they were not supporting uh, ordinary people and it took a while on various indicators for trust in government to build back up again because of those perceptions that the the government treated different people uh, quite differently so i think this this big question of of trust that you started with
0: is a a very key one. Yes, Maria, it it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, we we think about corruption being an element in declining trust along with with governments acting in ways that uh, may benefit certain sectors over other sectors, declining sense of proper representation, and also a, a growth of cynicism. How dangerous do you think it is that we have these, these forces acting on what we might call and what might come to be called late stage democracy? If in fact we're in a dangerous point here where democracies are deteriorating and that, that, that isn't able to be turned around. One wonders, you know, because we see this slide to this attraction of, of kind of demagogues. We see people like, you know, the rise of Trump or Duterte or Orban in Hungary, you know, these people who are promising glib answers to these sort of complex problems. And the cynicism itself uh, amongst voters who decide that all politicians are in it for themselves anyway, and so they sort of opt for these great correctives, these these great popular anti-politicians who, of course, turn out to be utterly terrible.
2: Yeah, so I think there's like several kind of things to your question. I think it's actually really important to sort of think about established democracies as a slightly different set of issues to what we'd kind of call post-communist states or um, a country like the Philippines that has always sort of struggled with aspects of governance, Mm. you know, because there's different kind of legacy sort of issues at play there and and they might actually be more interesting to compare to pre-World War II states that sort of were experimenting with with democracy for the for the first time another thing is like i mean i know there's a lot of doom and gloom around about the state of democracy and, and i and i i I do think that there are lots of issues that we should be kind of concerned about. But in, in some senses, it, it, it could just be sort of cyclical. Like many of the debates we were having now about, you know, the state of democracy, the state of the economy, you know, what hope is there for the future, et cetera, we were having in the mid-1970s and government was uh, able to sort of reinvent itself along, uh, I guess, a neoliberal line, which, you know, has created all kinds of pathologies. But my, my point is, is that, some part of this discussion is sort of cyclical, right? Like we have a policy consensus. It it works very well for a while. And then, you know, obviously the world changes and it starts to like trip up on its own inconsistencies. We had a whole spate of anti-corruption investigations and discussion about corruption in this country in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, we're sort of, I think, coming anew to that set of conversations it's almost like every generation really has to learn these lessons about why it is that these norms around what good government looks like and you know effectively like in a way moral leadership right being seen to be a good public servant are so critical right and I think one of the difficulties with these discussions is that we seem to have like lost like a public language to sort of discuss Um, some of these kinds of norms, right, because of the way society has changed. Like I think in the 50s, you know, it it was much easier to have a kind of shared set of norms and values around what a good society looks like, what a what a good civilization looks like, because all of these concepts were not really kind of contested and like they were quite monolithic. Whereas, you know, today the world is kind of more complex, all of a lot of these terms are themselves considered, you know, problematic or whatever. And I think that has kind of left us in a position where, you know, some of these virtues, I suppose, right, around honesty and all of that need to be, you know, reasserted or, or reinvented. But also they're just difficult to measure. Mm. And when things are difficult to measure, I think in our current sort of metric-obsessed age, that we just put them in the too-hard basket, and that's another reason why we, we seem to lack the language.
0: It's a really good point, Maria. Tony, just on that, Maria makes the point that some of those things can be difficult to measure, talking about the virtues particularly of good governance and, you know, sort of moral leadership, difficult to measure and therefore perhaps difficult to protect.
1: I think there are a couple of things there. It goes back to a question you raised earlier, Mark, about which countries are, are doing better. Over the last decade, the, the countries that have done the best in improving their scores on the uh, Transparency International Index, basically four of them, two are uh, the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia who have uh, done a tremendous job in improving their institutions and building that shared trust that Maria was talking about. Uh, the other, the other two are Italy, which I mentioned before, and Greece. And again, it's strengthening of institutions that is an important part of that. It's also, and this comes through in in terms of the the measurement issue, in uh, opinion polls about uh, the effectiveness of government and how much do you trust government. Those polls showed a big upsurge in support for the government and belief in government in the early stages of the. Uh, the COVID pandemic, that people saw the government getting out there and doing some. I mean, there have been some criticisms of it, but overall, doing an extremely good job in firstly protecting the population and secondly in uh, keeping the economy um, going reasonably well. And there was very much a message, particularly coming from um, from the state governments, of we're, we're all in this together. We've got to work together. And, you know, yes, you're, there's an imposition on you in terms of the lockdowns and so on, but we're doing it for the greater good. And there was a very strong feeling for that, I think. And so you got a very positive response.
0: Yeah, well, that was actually where we saw very much a reduction in the in the normal competitive theatre of politics, and a, a much greater focus on on getting results, on getting things done, on pulling together, as you say. And we saw that uh, both within the political jurisdictions. So we saw the opposition and the government at the federal level much more as one. The opposition wasn't seeking to um, oppose the government in the very dramatic action uh, policy changes that needed to be made but also we saw the f- the federation itself working well where the states you know we had the creation of the national cabinet we had the states and and the and the commonwealth uh, in some cases of different political stripe but mostly working together and in those first several months really of the pandemic that was a very striking culture change for australia and it, as you say it did show up in popularity of leaders and in general trust in government delivering whereas most of the time of course politics is an adversarial business and for every minister defending a government decision uh, projecting a government policy there are multiple critics uh, wanting to suggest that it's the the worst thing in the world and that it's you know poorly motivated and everything else and perhaps that's just the messiness of democracy that we need to we need to accept that. Uh, that there, you know, and that's why it's easy for someone like Putin or, or others to say, well, you know, democracy is not perfect. Of course it's not perfect. That's sort of the whole point in a sense.
2: I think you've sort of hit upon something there, Mark, and I think I'd like to take it a bit gloomier than what you have sort of said there. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's actually like a deep irony that when we saw a consensus and a lack of debate, that's trust went up in this country. And I don't think that is because debate is wrong or bad. It's because for many years now, we really haven't had debate at all. We've just had, quote unquote, product differentiation. Right. So, and we saw, we've seen that recently with tactics in the parliament or in political debate, which is all about essentially trying to get the media attention onto certain issue domains that one part, side or the other is considered to own. Right. That's actually not debate. That is essentially trying to control the space. Um, so people are thinking about subject X, not alternatives not like what society could be or or how we could improve it and that is I think different from times past and it kind of goes to what Tony was saying about you know these countries that have seen improvements in their corruption indexes have invested in their institutions And, and one of our institutions right is the way we conduct public kind of discourse and what we have really seen in the last for a long time now, actually, is, you know, the the reference to what happens in Parliament as insider stuff or bubble stuff or not real or, you know, um, ultimately everything reduced down to a game or, you know, go back to Graham Richardson in the 90s who sort of said whatever it takes, right? It's the, the purpose of politics, right, coming in to be a servant of the people to actually make a kind of thoughtful contribution and seek compromise in what is a messy kind of field. That seems to have gone missing and with it, these other kinds of values that we came to rely on and these other norms that we thought were so important.
0: Well, I can't disagree with. Give me enough for you. No, no, no. I, I can't disagree with that. I think you're you're absolutely right. I think those those are the the factors, and we, uh, you know, we've we've spoken about them before as well. The this sort of professionalisation of politics to the point it's an inadequate term, really. But I suppose what it's trying to describe is the is the the sense of politicians becoming a set of interests and serving a set of interests that are really. Not those of the people, but those of their own, but they're dressed up in a, in a certain way as to be able to effectively get away with them. And, and that's what we've seen. And, and the, the old idea of politicians living on their wits and, and their values and observing. Norms of behaviour, standards, conventions, mores—such that if uh, they are found to have uh, erred in any significant way, sometimes not even in a significant way, uh, but misled the house or whatever it might be—we might have seen them resign. And these sorts of normative behaviours that reinforce the system—they seem to have gone. And so we end up with a situation where we are kind of—and—and and, you know, Trump's probably the, the the glaring example of this, and it, we've seen it infect other democratic politics as well. We realize in the end or well, how little power we have as an electorate over our governments when they decide to just muddle through whatever the latest controversy is. Tony, we haven't got much time left, but I wanted to ask you a question that sort of goes to this and it's a it's about a kind of a real world example because we I mean you've got uh, an anti-corruption commission in Victoria that as I say the most famous one probably is ICAC in New South Wales have these bodies in your estimation changed the political culture have they lifted the standard of government even if only through striking fear into the hearts of public servants and uh, and elected officials that they you know that they could be hauled before these these bodies. I know that, 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 as I say, the New South Wales one in particular has been strongly criticised for, you know, for being a star chamber for for effectively finding people guilty by putting them on the witness stand. And you know that was one of the big themes in the criticism of ICAC in relation to Gladys Berejiklian. But you know there've been other premiers that have gone as well. Perhaps that's just a a cost in transition and that after we get through this difficult period, the existence of these strong anti-corruption commissions leads to a generation of politicians who, if they wouldn't act correctly out of their own conscience, will now at least act more correctly out of their own need to survive.
1: I think the the best example to to draw on actually is the establishment of the anti-corruption measures in, in Queensland after the Fitzgerald Royal Commission. And uh, which uh, showed the extent of corruption in the, particularly the later years of the Bjorki-Peterson administration. And uh, there have been dramatic improvements there in terms of the uh, uh, the cleanliness of politics in Queensland.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. The, the political culture there was very sort of demonstrably corrupt and, and that commission was a real kind of hinge point, wasn't it, in changing that culture?
1: It certainly was. And I think another point, picking up something that Maria said, there is actually a considerable appetite for for cleaner and more involved politics. We saw it in the same-sex marriage referendum a few years back. The amount of involvement that people gave on that issue, and totally apart from any of the political parties, showed, I think, that people were prepared to get involved and were, were interested in the issues. We're seeing a little bit the same with the there seems to be a ground surge of for support for the, the, the voices of mm. campaigns that are coming up for the for the next election. How strong that will be in the, in the final day, we'll, we'll have to see. But I think that also shows that there's, there's a lot of people getting involved in, in, in that politics, which is really a, a new sort of politics compared to some of the more self-serving stuff that you were referring to.
0: Maria uh, we're going to have to go there but I want to get a final comment from you on on what Tony was just saying and 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 sort of frame it like by way of this question is that possibly the recovery of democracy that we could see and that we would all like to see? That is giving people greater participation. Do we need to, as we were discussing in a, in a seminar the other day, you and I with Mark Evans, do we need to think about ways in which we can have institutional renewal within democracy, do things differently, and involve people in it, give them a greater stake, give everyone a greater stake? in the democracy take it back in effect from politicians whose trust has been perhaps breached.
2: Well yeah, the short answer is yes. I mean like some of this stuff is sort of cyclical as we've kind of discussed and and you know people wanting to participate in independent candidates campaigns is 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 an example of of exactly just that kind of renewal. But Look, you know, independents will struggle to get elected under the current electoral system, like it's just a fact. So, um, it might be great that people want to participate, but it will be difficult to necessarily convert that into, um, you know, large-scale sort of systemic change. Perhaps we might see a situation where they hold power over the the crossbench and can, can sort of look to to some institutional changes some renovations that that do sort of build or build new capacities in for, for citizens that want to that want to participate but don't necessarily want to be involved in in parties anymore
0: well let's hope that is the case because we what, what we're watching at the moment is the sort of uh, the slow decline of it and it's kind of death of a thousand cuts uh, you know the boiling frog analogy uh, comes to mind when we when we see uh, just the sort of erosion uh, or the seeding of longstanding conventions and rights that the people have from their, you know, over their governments. And uh, that process goes along. And then before you know it, you're suddenly having these movements that we've seen, you know, come up in, in the US and other places uh, where populists get elected because people have decided that Everything's everything's crook, and they want some strong man to come along and uh, and sort of pull a few levers decisively, and that's a terrible situation. Luckily, we're not quite there yet in Australia, but perhaps participation is the is the uh, the chance that people have, and maybe it will be. Maybe you're right, Maria. Maybe none of these uh, voices of or voices for uh, candidates will uh, get elected, but on the other hand, maybe some of them will. Uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, not completely convinced on that question. We'll see what happens. Tony Ward, thank you so much for for being on Democracy Sausage. We look forward to having you back at some stage. It's uh, terrific to hear and read your thoughts.
1: Well, thank you for that, Mark. Very happy to be involved. And yes, I'd be be delighted uh, to have another opportunity to, to chat about these issues. Excellent.
0: And thank you once again, Maria. Thank you. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now.